Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and this is the Valentine's Day episode. If there's one thing you can count on in A Good Night for a Murder on Valentine's Day, it's a love triangle and a poisoning. This is the story of chocolate cream killer Christiana Edmonds. But first, a Victorian society tip. Tonight's Victorian society tip is about Valentine's cards. The Victorians loved sending cards, so much so that there doesn't seem to have been a thought in their head that they didn't put into a card. If you have a look at my TikTok account at A Good Night for a Murder, you'll see just how unhinged Victorian holiday cards could get. And Valentine's Day was no exception. About the 1840s, a style of card we've now termed vinegar valentines became popular. Vinegar seems to be a contemporary description attached to what Victorians referred to as comic or mocking valentines, but the term vinegar is a mild take on this type of valentine. You see, Victorians were fond of sending romantic valentines through the mail as a Valentine's Day tradition. In fact, the more gaudy and over-the-top your valentine was indicated how strongly one felt about the recipient. This style of valentine became known as English lace valentines. It was common to handcraft elaborate cards with bits of lace, feathers, tinsel, pressed flowers, mirrors, shells, and more to show the object of your affections just how crazy you were about them. But the same way Victorians expressed their love by sending beautiful valentines, they also expressed their disdain for anyone and everyone. No one was safe from a vinegar valentine. These were much simpler cards, often mass-produced on single sheets of paper, then folded in half and sealed with a bit of wax. Before reform that would establish standardized postage rates, the cost of the post was the responsibility of the recipient, not the sender. So recipients of vinegar valentines were made to pay to be insulted. And believe me, these vinegar valentines were brutal. Some were playful or sarcastic, but most were pretty vicious. They poked fun at physical characteristics such as being bald, overweight, underweight, short, tall, having a big nose, being blind or deaf. There were also cards for insulting every profession, from physicians to bankers to salesmen and salesladies. One of these shows a caricature of a saleslady with a grotesque sneer in her face and reads, Saleslady, as you wait upon the women with disgust upon your face, the way you snap and bark at them, one would think you own the place. Others attacked people's character or habits, making fun of them for being a flirt, acting fake, men who were too submissive, women who were too forward, for drinking too much, or even reading too many books. An example of one of these shows a rather haggard-looking young woman holding a stack of books with the verse, Pray, do you ever mend your clothes or comb your hair? Well, I suppose you've got no time, for people say you're reading novels all the day. Some were aimed at spreading the romantic advances of unwanted suitors, but not in a gentle way. One of these shows a laughing young woman throwing a bucket of water at an unsuspecting man and reads, here's a pretty cool reception. At least you'll say there's no deception. It says as plain as it can say, old fellow, you best step away. Another shows a woman handing a lemon so huge to a man it threatens to crush him. The prince says, tis a lemon that I hand you and bid you now skidoo. Because I love another, there is no chance for you. The suffragette movement invoked a particular ire from the makers of vinegar valentines as well. Of course, these cards were sent anonymously. One could consider them an early form of trolling. Like trolls, the anonymity of vinegar valentines made people feel very brave. Because sales between traditional romantic valentines and vinegar valentines was split pretty evenly. Delivery rates were skewed, though, as post offices often confiscated cards they deemed too vulgar to deliver. 
One year, over 25,000 cards were held in a Chicago post office as unfit to send. Some of these cards provoked such strong feelings in people that receiving them prompted fistfights, suicide, and even attempted murder. In one case in London in 1885, a man received a vinegar valentine, which he knew to be from his estranged wife. So he bought a gun and he shot her. In fact, most surviving vinegar valentines from the era are unsold stock from printers or shops, as very few would actually keep such a scathing vinegar valentine. Fortunately, the popularity of vinegar valentines died out in the later part of the 19th century. A quick Patreon announcement before we get going. Welcome to newest members Allison, Michelle, and Joanna. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I am so glad you're here. A quick word about the Good Night for a Murder Patreon. At the $5 Housekeeper and Butler tier, you get a bonus content episode that accompanies each regular feed episode. I always share what it'll be about at the end of each episode, and I've even started adding previews of them after the outro music. If you have maybe been thinking about joining, I want to let you know that this month of February is a great time to do so. The reason for that is that A Good Night for a Murder is about to wrap up Season 2, and I'm going to be taking the months of March and April off to prepare for Season 3. So, Patreon payments will be paused for the next two months. Meaning, if you join this month, you have nearly a whole three months to listen to the back catalog of bonus content and decide if you like it or not. But you have to join before the end of February because while payments are paused, you won't be able to join. Just something to think about. If you think you might miss a good night for a murder while I'm on a little spring break through March and April, I hope you'll consider joining at the $5 Housekeeper and Butler tier. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. This episode does include the death of a child. Please take care while listening. Christiana was born in the UK and Margate, Kent on October 3rd, 1828 to parents William and Anne. Her father was an architect who achieved notoriety for his design of the Margate Lighthouse and local Holy Trinity Church. Her mother came from a military family where both her father and brother were Royal Marine captains, so they were a fairly well-off family. It sounds like Christiana also had at least one brother and one sister. Now, despite being a well-off family, it sounds like Christiana's formative years could very well have been a bit tumultuous. It doesn't sound like Christiana's family enjoyed good mental health, unfortunately. There is not much detail surrounding this, but when Christiana was about 15, it was stated that her father, quote, became insane, and he was sent to live at a private lunatic asylum. In 1844, the money ran out, so he came home. Initially, he was improved, but as we know today, one cannot just be cured of their mental illness, unfortunately, and by March of 1845, he was back at a different asylum. In 1847, her father died while still living at the asylum. Again, there is not much detail given here either, but after her father died, sometime in her early to mid-20s, Christiana was diagnosed with hysteria. I will not be going down a rabbit hole on the medical community's history of failing women in this episode, but just to be clear, hysteria is not and never was a physical or mental disorder. It was an excuse society used to oppress any behavior in women that they viewed as inappropriate. Based upon what we're going to learn about Christiana in this episode, though, you may very well conclude that she had some things going on. But I don't think we can hold a garbage can diagnosis of hysteria against her, especially not at this time in her life. 
because it seems that whatever ailed her father also seems to have afflicted her brother, and in 1866, he also died from what was termed insanity. There is also mention of her sister attempting to jump out of a window at some point, though I couldn't put a timeline to it. This series of tragic events led Christiana and her mother to move to the seaside town of Brighton in 1867. The town of Brighton was one of the most popular resort towns in Victorian England. Between 1801 and 1841, the population of what had been a quiet fishing community increased from a little over 7,000 to over 45,000. By 1901, the population would reach over 120,000. The completion of a London and Brighton railway in 1841 made the town accessible for day trippers from London. The next two years pass unremarkably. Then, in 1869, Christiana and her mother make the acquaintance of the Beard family. It doesn't sound like they lived right next door to the Edmonds, but they knew one another from around the neighborhood. The Beard family consisted of Dr. Charles Beard, his wife Emily, and their seven children. Christiana, who is now 41 years old by now, befriends Emily, but it sounds like her friendship with her may very well have been a ruse to allow her to get closer to the good Dr. Beard. It would seem that Christiana and Dr. Beard developed their own kind of friendship. Now, to this day, we never really learn the true nature of this friendship. It could have been a flirtation, an emotional affair, it could have been physical, or it could have been entirely in Christiana's head. It depends who you believe. As usual, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. In about September of 1870, there was one letter recovered from Dr. Beard to Christiana where he said, this correspondence must cease. It is no good for either of us. So it sounds like, at the very least, they could have been exchanging some inappropriate letters. Now, whether or not Christiana was engaged in an affair with the doctor or she just wanted to be, there was one thing standing in her way. The wife, of course. So, Christiana hatches a plan to get rid of her. She is going to poison her. She purchased some chocolate cream candies from local confectioner John Maynard, and then she gets her hand on some strychnine. Strychnine was widely used as rodent poison and was readily available at any chemist. From the British Library, in humans, it caused frothing at the mouth and muscle spasms, which increased in intensity until the victim died from asphyxiation due to paralysis of the neural pathways. Christiana inserts the strychnine into one of the chocolates, then drops by the Beard family home to gift the chocolates to the Beards and their children. She says, Emily, why don't you have one right now? Here, try this one. But Emily declines. Christiana tells her, no, you must try one. I insist. And when Emily declines again, Christiana advances on her, chocolate in hand, and all but forces the chocolate cream into Emily's mouth. Emily spits the chocolate out, probably asks Christina what the hell is wrong with her, and then Christiana awkwardly excused herself from the home. This might be the dramatized version. Other versions say she just sent the candy to the home, but based on what lengths Christiana is about to go to, I have no trouble believing the dramatized version, to be honest. Now, whether Christiana forced a chocolate into Emily's mouth or she just had the box delivered, Emily does get very suddenly violently sick, but she recovers. Dr. Beard, though, sees exactly what's going on here, and he confronts Christiana. If he wasn't done with her before, he certainly is now. Christiana tries to tell him she couldn't possibly have been involved in anything so appalling. In fact, she herself actually had some of the same chocolate and also got sick. The doctor isn't buying it, though, and he tells her not to come around anymore. But he does not report the matter to the authorities. The fact that Dr. Beard had cut her off sent Christiana into a panic. She has to find a way to absolve herself. So she devised a plan to frame the local candy maker, John Maynard. 
When he got caught, Dr. Beard would see that it was him and not her all along, and she'd be back in his good graces. So Christiana purchased another box of chocolate creams and again laced them with strychnine. She returned them to the store and waited for them to be resold. Nowadays, thank goodness, there are laws that prevent retailers from reshelving and selling returned food, but in the 1800s, no such law existed. Now, several people did get sick, but no one connected it back to the chocolates from Maynard's shop. So, Christiana does it again, and then again. Realizing this could quickly become suspicious, she starts paying young boys to run errands to go purchase the chocolates for her. She then laced them with strychnine and asks another boy to return them. So many people around Brighton are getting sick that the police can't help but take notice. They suspect it could be the candy coming from Maynard's shop, but no one can be sure. It is the 1870s, and there was a plethora of diseases, shoddy food safety practices, and people taking straight-up poisons as vitamins and the like after all. Christiana, though, inserts herself into the investigation when she makes a complaint against John Maynard, claiming she purchased some chocolate creams from him and they most certainly made her instantly violently ill. However, none of this is enough to send Dr. Beard humbly crawling back to Christiana, begging her forgiveness. So, she keeps going. Then, on June 12, 1871, little four-year-old Sidney Albert Barker is on vacation in Brighton with his family. His uncle bought some chocolate creams from Maynard's and shared them with him as a treat. Sidney and his uncle both got very, very ill. The uncle is able to recover, but poor Sidney was just too little, and he tragically died from ingesting the poisoned chocolates. Now, police are called in to investigate John Maynard's candy shop. John Maynard states that he did not have a mouse problem, nor was he apt to use strychnine if he did. But it's ruled that Sidney's death was an accidental poisoning, and John Maynard destroyed all of his stock. I cannot imagine the guilt and confusion this poor man must have felt. Later that summer, in August, Christiana heard through the grapevine that Dr. Beard is planning on moving his family to Scotland. And she panicked. Her love is slipping through her fingers. Why has he not realized the error of his ways yet and apologized to her for how he treated her? Maynard was charged. She obviously did not poison Emily. Since her plan isn't working, she decides she has to kick things up a notch. She traveled to London and mailed back parcels of poisoned fruits and cakes to prominent local community members and officials, to Dr. Beard's wife Emily again, and to herself. And more people get sick. The police are like, this is bananas, what is happening? And they offer a reward for any information leading to the capture of whoever is behind these poisonings. One paper reported, Borough of Brighton, 20 pound reward. That's a little under 2,000 pounds and nearly 2,500 US dollars in today's money, by the way. Whereas some evil disposed person has lately sent to different families in Brighton parcels of fruit, cakes, and sweets, which have been found to contain poison, the particulars of two which cases are stated at the foot hereof. Notice is hereby given that whoever will give such information to the undersigned as shall lead to the apprehension and conviction of the offender will be paid a reward of 20 pounds. Finally, Dr. Beard came forward and informed the police of his suspicions against Christiana Edmonds in all this and turned over all of his letters from her. He told them she's obsessed with me, she's tried to harm my wife, and now I think she started this poisoning campaign as a cover-up. She is crazy. So the police examine these letters, and whatever they find does give them reason to believe the good doctor's story may be true. But how can they know these letters are even from Christiana Edmonds? Well, remember back when she herself made a complaint against Maynard's candy shop? Police write to her and ask for more details, and she responded in kind. 
And now they have our handwriting sample, which does indeed match the letters Dr. Beard shared with them. What's more, the parents of the boy who died received an anonymous letter encouraging them to sue John Maynard. They turned that over to police because they thought it was kind of weird. And wouldn't you know, the handwriting in that letter is also a dead ringer for the handwriting of Christiana Edmonds. Now that they're looking a bit more closely at Christiana, more evidence starts to quickly pile up against her. They learn that she had, in the past, bought and returned pastries from another local shop, and that she had purchased strychnine allegedly for a mouse problem under an alias. And they learn that she was on the same boat returning from London that delivered those poison fruits and cakes that were distributed. On January 8, 1872, Christiana Edmonds was indicted for the murder of the young boy, Signe Albert Barker. The sensation this caused for this popular seaside vacation spot was so great that the trial was moved from the nearby town of Lewes to Old Bailey in London. The trial took place on January 15th and 16th of 1872, during which Dr. Beard testified, as well as her mother, who stated that the family had a long history of mental illness on both sides. In the end, though, Christiana was found, quote, morally defective, but not insane, and she was sentenced to death. It was part of proceedings to ask the defendant if there was any reason they should not be put to death, and one reason women often gave was because they were pregnant. And this is exactly what Christiana tried to say. A jury of matrons was pretty problematic and very unreliable for many reasons, but at this time, the court still viewed it as relevant, so a jury of matrons was called for to examine Christiana, as well as a doctor, who quickly determined that she was not pregnant and the sentence would stand. As it turns out, though, Christiana would evade the gallows anyway. Later that month, a team of doctors assessed Christiana and declared her insane, and her sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. An entry in the British Medical Journal on January 27, 1872, read the conclusions of Sir William Gull and Dr. Orange of Broadmoor as to the insanity of Christiana Edmonds were derived from a four-hours examination of the convict. The results were such as to lead to the most absolute and unequivocal conclusions rendering collateral testimony which might have been adduced unnecessary. These conclusions were conveyed to the Home Secretary in a convincing and unquestionable manner. Like most lunatics, she does not consider herself insane. It is only fair to say that the suspicions which have been excited concerning her relations to Dr. Beard are, according to her own statements and other evidence which is before us, entirely without foundation, although this could not be entered upon at the trial. People were pissed about this. The fact that a couple, literally just two doctors, could overturn a guilty verdict determined by a hearing, judge, and jury did not sit well with people. The mayor of Brighton called it one of the grossest pieces of injustice ever perpetrated. And I agree, the concept is troubling. Nowadays, we have this notion of competence to stand trial, and I tried to look into the history of it, but what I found is that it's still a very nuanced, layered topic with many gray areas, even today. Generally, though, I feel like we try to determine if the accused is competent to stand trial before the trial, not after. That would make sense, but admittedly, there's a lot I don't know or understand about our justice system. Either way, Christiana's sentence was commuted and she did spend the rest of her life in the asylum. She died there on September 19, 1907, at the age of 79. Her cause of death was listed as senile decay, or what we would more likely describe as old age. The location of her burial is unknown. Speaking of things that are unknown, in all the sources I consulted, none shared Christiana's side of the story. So to this day, we don't really know why she did it. The motive I presented here is the most widely accepted version, but there were a few problems with the case that I do not think would have allowed for a guilty verdict in modern times. 
largely because pretty much the entire case was based on circumstantial evidence. Dr. Beard said she gave his wife chocolate that made her sick, but can he prove that? He can't. It has been questioned if she even really had motive to commit this crime. All we're doing is taking Dr. Beard's word for it. Plus, it was never actually proven that the boy died from poison candy either. Initially, the poisoning was even ruled accidental. The reasoning to suddenly pivot and blame Christiana was purely circumstantial. And so what if she did write to the boy's parents telling them to sue the candy maker? That's not illegal. There was the matter of mailing poison goodies to other people, but she wasn't on trial for that, only for the death of young Sidney Albert Barker. All this is kind of playing devil's advocate a bit, though I do wish more of Christiana's perspective was available. I just couldn't find it. I am curious to know what you think, though. If you head over to Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder, you can let me know there. I've posted some photos of Christiana and some newspaper headlines covering her case over on Instagram and TikTok. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons for this episode is something a little bit different. I thought I'd try to find some historic true crimes that occurred on Valentine's Day, and when I did, there was one case that stood out head and shoulders above everything else, and that is the Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. That's right, it's a mob story from the golden age of gangsters, and it's intense. And that is what I'll be sharing on Patreon for this episode's bonus content. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening. Happy Valentine's Day. And I will talk to you again soon. and to accompany episode 37 about the chocolate cream killer Christiana Edmonds in our Valentine's Day episode, I thought I'd explore more Valentine's Day true crime. When I started to research historic Valentine's Day crime, though, there was only one story that overwhelmed my search results. It's a Victorian-era adjacent story from 1929, but so far as historic true crime goes, this one cannot be ignored. This is the story of the Valentine's Day Massacre. The 1920s were the golden age of gangsterism. Prohibition, which was a nationwide ban on the sale and import of alcoholic beverages, was ushered in by the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1920. This led to ample opportunities for illegal bootlegging and speakeasy business, which was fully embraced by what would become the National Crime Syndicate in the 1930s. The key players in our story tonight, which takes place in Chicago in 1929, are the Irish Northsiders, led by George Bugs Moran, and the Italian Southsiders, led by Al Capone. The rival gangs often clashed in disputes between business and territory. Tensions escalated in September 1926 when Bugs and his men rolled up at a hotel where complaining...